All right, let's go ahead and turn to Leviticus chapter 7. We'll be continuing our series on using the law lawfully, looking at the Old Testament laws, seeing if they apply to us as modern-day New Testament Gentile believers, and if they do apply to us, how. And so we're going to be looking at hopefully three laws today. I hope we can get through all three of them. They're kind of short, and comparing them. Old Testament with the New Testament. <clears throat> so Leviticus 7 verse 26, the first law we're going to look at is the law prohibiting eating blood. So Leviticus 7 verse 26, Moreover, ye shall eat no manner of blood, whether it be a fowl or a beast in any of your dwellings. So the Jews, here we see in the Old Testament, the Jews were forbidden from eating blood. Now let's go to Leviticus 17. Leviticus 7 26 is just a one click one quick statement about this, but in Leviticus 17 we have a little more explanation given. <clears throat> Leviticus 17, verse number 10. And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off. From among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. And whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, which hunteth and catcheth any beast, or fowl that may be eaten, he shall even pour out the blood thereof, and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh, the blood of it is for the life thereof. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is in the blood, or is the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be cut off. So here you have repeated <coughs> statements, that they're not to eat the blood, <coughs> Uh, from anything that they eat, what they were required to do is to drain the blood from the meat before eating it. So you see that in verse 13 here. Uh, if you're hunting, you catch a beast or a fowl, he shall even pour out the blood thereof and cover it with dust. So, you know, cut the throat, cut a major artery, uh, pour out the blood, and then you can eat the meat. So uh, this is the Old Testament law. They were not allowed to eat blood. Uh, of any kind, whether it was from fowl or from beast, no blood was to be eaten. It was all to be uh, drained from the animal before the animal uh, was butchered and prepared for food. Now, one thing a lot of people say when they read this verse or this passage is that this is a prohibition against eating rare meat, meat that has a little bit of blood left in it. That's not what this is talking about. It's not a prohibition against rare meat. It's a prohibition of things like blood pudding, blood stew, uh, blood curds, uh, these types of eating the blood that are found in a lot of cultures uh, scattered all over the world. Uh, various cultures will drain the blood from the meat and keep it rather than draining it onto the ground like the, the Jews were required to do. They would drain it into a container and then they would use the blood as part of their food. So in some cases, the, the blood would be congealed and 
uh, eaten just just the congealed blood as it has hardened, uh, eaten like candy in some cases. Uh, you have uh, blood pudding is sort of a sausage that's made with the blood and then bits of, and pieces of meat uh, and then grains like oats uh, in order to absorb the blood and, and help it to stay congealed into the sausage. And it's very popular in, in England and other places in Europe. Uh, you have blood stew, it's just the blood poured into a bowl, heated up, and some other ingredients added if, if you'd like to add flavoring. There's even a culture that has blood pancakes. It makes sort of a, a cake with the blood and cooks it in the pan. It's, it's a very common thing to eat the blood uh, along with the meat in many cultures. But God said to the Jews, you're not to do this. This is something I do not want you to do. You're to drain the blood, let it be uh, buried in the ground, and you're to eat just the meat and not eat any blood. So that's the command for the Jews. They were not to eat any blood of any creature that they <clears throat> ate. But what does this have to do with us as Gentile believers in the New Testament? To see the New Testament application, first we're going to go back further in the Old Testament. Let's go to Genesis chapter 9. So Genesis chapter 9, this is right after Noah has come out of the ark. And so God gives to Noah certain laws and commandments. These are the uh, what's known to the Jews as the Noahide laws. Uh, these are the, the laws that apply to all mankind because we're all descendants of Noah. And so God gave Noah some laws, and one of those laws is found in verse number 3. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. Okay, and so here this law that the Jews had for not eating any of the blood was a reinstatement of an older law that God had given to Noah for Noah to apply to all of his descendants, which meant for all humanity. So originally, God gave this law against eating blood to all humanity. So this is a universal law. It's not just part of the Mosaic law for the Jews. It's a universal law that was given to Noah for all humanity, just like the, the laws against uh, murder, for example, is a, a universal law. It applies to everyone, not just to the Jews. So here we have this universal law, and we would expect if there's a universal law, that we would find reference to it in the New Testament, and we do. So let's turn to Acts chapter 14. <clears throat> Acts chapter 14, and we will begin in verse 26. And we're going to read the remainder of 14, and really the passage goes all the way to the end of chapter 15, but we're not going to read all of it. <laughs> We'll skip a little bit. So chapter 14, verse 26. <clears throat> this is talking about Paul uh, and Barnabas coming to Antioch and thence sailed to Antioch from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. Fulfilled. So this is they've come back to Antioch now. And when they were come and gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them 
and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there they abode long time with the disciples. So Paul and Barnabas have gone out on their missionary journey, and they've come back to Antioch, and they're saying, hey, all the Gentiles are getting saved also. And then in chapter 15, verse 1, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. Okay, so the question here is, do we have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved? And that's, or not necessarily, well, yeah, it's in order to be saved. And so the answer that the apostles gave back is, no, you don't have to keep the law in order to be saved. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. And that's what the remainder of chapter 15 is. Let's jump down to verse 28 and 29. They had a caveat that they added to this. Uh, the, the apostles in Jerusalem meeting with Paul and Barnabas and this conference of the apostles trying to determine how to explain the relationship Gentiles should have to the law of the Old Testament. And one of the things that they said we find in verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye you keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. So they said, the law is not necessary for salvation, but we think you should also uh, abstain from these things. And they list several things. One of them was from meats offered to idols. Now we know that one was eventually repealed. Uh, Paul eventually said that that was no longer necessary except for conscience sake. Uh, because the, the meat is, once it's sanctified unto God, it's all good. And then you have from blood, from things strangled, from fornication. Okay, so we have this reference to keeping themselves from blood and from eating blood. That's a reference back to the, you know, the Mosaic Law within Leviticus 7 and Leviticus 17. It's also a reference back to the uh, Noahide law in Genesis chapter 9. So we see a universal law that is referenced in the Mosaic law also, and that is also referenced again in the New Testament and in Acts uh, in the, this advice that is given to the Gentile churches. So that would indicate that this law still applies to us as Gentile believers, this law against eating blood from uh, the meat that we consume. Now some people would say this would contradict 1 Timothy 4.4, which says that any type of meat that's been sanctified with prayer is acceptable. Let's go there, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 4. We've already looked at this in the past when we looked at some of the dietary laws. Uh, back when we were going through the positive commandments, uh, talking about clean and unclean animals. And in 1 Timothy 4, verse number 4, God says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. And so here we have a possible uh, contradiction between 1 Timothy 4, 4, which says uh, every creature is good and 
as long as it's received with thanksgiving, it's okay to eat. And then you have Acts chapter 15, 28 says that we're to still follow this universal commandment against eating blood. But if you look in 1 Timothy 4, verse 3, just one verse before, you have forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So 1 Timothy 4, 4 is just talking about the meat. It's not talking about you can eat any part of the creature you want. It's just talking about the meat from the creature. And so you can have meat from any creature, not that you can eat anything from any creature. Uh, and so there's no contradiction here between 1 Timothy 4, 4 and Acts 15, 28 and 29. And so that's the law on eating blood. The Old Testament commandment was that the Jews were forbidden from eating blood. The New Testament application to us as Gentiles is that that was a universal command given to all humanity. And it was repeated or at least referenced to again in the New Testament. So it would seem that it still applies to us today and that we should also abstain from eating blood. Any comments or questions on that one? All right. Quiet class today. All right, let's move to something a little more controversial. <laughs> eating blood isn't all that controversial in our culture. Let's go to something that is. We're going to talk about the prohibition against bowl cuts and goatees. Uh, so something that's definitely controversial among Christians in America. The Old Testament command is found in Leviticus 19. So let's turn there. <clears throat> Leviticus 19 and we'll be in verse 27. Right, Leviticus 19, verse 27. Ye shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shalt thou mar the corners of thy beard. Okay, so this is a commandment for Jewish men saying that they were forbidden from having what we would call a bowl cut, and they were also forbidden from having goatees. Now, the type of bowl cut that's being referred to here uh, involves shaving the, the edges of the head so that the remaining hair forms a circle around the top of the head. So it's the old bowl cut idea. You stick a bowl on top of the kid's head or the guy's head and you, you cut the hair all around the bowl. Uh, but it goes a step further, not just trimming the hair all around the bowl, but it's shaving uh, bald everywhere that uh, was not covered by that bowl. That was a style that's been popular in many cultures throughout human history. Uh, to have just hair in a perfect circle on the top of the head and then everything else completely shaved off and made bald. The Jews were forbidden from having that type of haircut. They were also forbidden from having uh, any type of beard where the corners were shaved off. So the, the outer edges of the beard cannot be shaved off. So that would include, <coughs> today that would include goatees. That's the primary style of beard today that uses that would be a goatee. And I can't really think of any other style of beard that would fit that description. But I'm sure there's someone out there that's come up with <laughs> something else. That, you know, Maybe they have the full beard across the bottom and just missing the sideburns. I don't know. But it does apply to, to goatees. So that's what we're just going to talk about today. So bowl cuts and goatees were forbidden to the Jews. Now there's a couple of interpretations of this law. 
Uh, one interpretation, the main one that's followed by most scholars, uh, is that this only applies to shaving the, the corners of the head and shaving the edges of the, of the beard if you're doing it for a mourning ritual. So a ritual and mourning for the dead uh, and worship of various gods and ancestors and things like that that the, the pagans would do. And so the, the theory is that the cultures around Israel would uh, have this practice of getting this particular haircut and this particular style of beard uh, and mourning for their dead loved ones that have passed on and uh, trying to, uh, they would basically sacrifice their hair so that their loved one would have a better afterlife, that type of a, an idea. And so many scholars hold to that view of this verse. They base that off the next verse, verse 28. You shall not make cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. And so they take that phrase, for the dead, which is referring to making cuttings in your flesh, and they say that that phrase applies to all of verse 28 and all of verse 27. There is no textual reason to say that. There's nothing in the text that tells you that phrase for the dead also applies to uh, verse 27. Uh, it's just an assumption that is made and they run with it. The Jews typically have this view also, the, the Jewish scholars, uh, taking that phrase for the dead and applying it to verse 27 as well as verse 28. <clears throat> I disagree, but that's the... That's the majority view of this verse. Uh, the other view is that verse 27 is a general prohibition against rounding the corners of your head and marring the corners of your beard for any reason. It's not limited to just mourning for the dead, but it applies for any reason whatsoever. I think that God was for prohibiting the Jews from doing this at all, from having a bowl cut or a goatee at all. I think that the reason for that can be seen in 2 Samuel chapter 10. So let's turn there, 2 Samuel chapter 10. And what's happened here is that a king of the uh, children of Ammon has died, and his son has come to the throne, his son is Hanan. And uh, the king who had passed had been kind to David in the past. And so David said, I'm going to show some kindness unto Hanan, the, the new king. Uh, and I'm going to send in some ambassadors to him, delivering gifts and expressing my condolences and all that. So he does that. Well, Hanan takes it wrong and sends back David's ambassadors in disgrace. And we have the description of that disgrace in verse number four. Wherefore, Hanan took David's servants and shaved off one half of, the, of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. Okay, so he's sending them back with half their beards shaved off and with their garments split down the middle, you know, half their garments gone. Uh, ha having half their beard shaved off would be marring a corner of their beard. Uh, it's not a goatee because it's you know split right down the middle, one half shaved off, but it's still marring the corner of one of the beards. Uh, and so, look at their response to David 
when they finally get to him and his response to them. Verse number five, when they told it unto David, excuse me, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown and then return. So they were greatly ashamed to have half their beards shaved off. And David said, that's okay. You just stay there until your beards grow back. Uh, where you are, Jericho, you know, they've just come across the Jordan River, uh, coming back to, to David. He said, that's okay. You stay there. You don't have to come back to Jerusalem. You don't have to report back to work uh, until your beards grow back. And then you can come back to work. So it seems at this time, when David was uh, king, that the Jews were interpreting this verse differently, this prohibition differently, than the Jews interpret it today. And it seems like at this time period, the Jews were interpreting this as a general prohibition against goatees uh, at any time, not just in mourning for the dead. Because if it was, if it was just a prohibition for mourning for the dead, there would be no reason for these men to be ashamed and not want to come back to work. But if it's a general prohibition against that style of beard, uh, then their hesitancy to come back to Jerusalem makes more sense. Uh, now, it's interesting that there's no punishment given for violations of this passage. The, the violations uh, were prohibited, you know, <coughs> prohibited from having that hairstyle and that style of beard. But there's no punishment given. It was just a, a matter of uh, shame. And so you see that again in 2 Samuel 10. It's just a matter of them being shamed. They weren't punished for that, but it was a matter of shame. And so they stayed hidden, uh, stayed outside of Jerusalem until their shame had been taken away. Okay, so that's the Old Testament command. Now let's look at the New Testament application of this. The first thing we see is that there's no mention of this anywhere in the New Testament. So we can't draw firm conclusions saying the New Testament says this applies to Gentile believers or the New Testament says it doesn't apply to Gentile believers. And scholars are pretty much divided as to whether this command applies to the Gentiles. Most of them say it does not because they say that it only applied to rituals of mourning for the dead. Well, I disagree with them on that. And there are some scholars who would say, yes, this still applies to Gentiles today. And uh, they hold to the same reasoning that I hold to, which is that this uh, was not limited to just uh, rituals for the dead. God had some other reason that he wanted the Jews to not have this particular hairstyle. Um, so it may apply to Gentiles. It may not. We can't be sure either way. So I recommend erring on the side of caution. But I don't hold it against anyone that, you know, takes the other side, the other view. And uh, I don't think a person is a wicked heathen sinner if they have a goatee. So that's that's not not the way I'd take this. But I just to apply it to my life, I err on the side of caution, and I'm I'm not going to have a goatee. I'm also not going to have a bowl cut. But there is no danger of that to begin with because I think they look stupid. But there's. I'm definitely not going to go out and get a bowl cut for the same reason, because I can't say with 100% certainty that bowl cuts and goatees are fine with God. And that he, he just had some strange reason for having the Jews have this particular law. I can't say with certainty that God is not fine with them. Um, so I'm just going to err on the side of caution and leave it up to everyone else's conscience as to what they do with it. So that's that law against bowl cuts and goatees. Any comments or questions?
before we try to quickly hit the next one. In regards to the, you know, the caution, uh, when you look at David, he sent those guys back and said, they'll come back until you throw your beer. Does that mean they can still come back with half their clothes on? Well, you would assume <laughs> they've changed their clothes already. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> they, typically, when you travel, you're going to take well, more than one set of clothes. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's move on to the next one now. <laughs> All right, the next uh, prohibition we're looking at is found in Deuteronomy 25 and verse number 4. This one is very familiar uh, to us today. Primarily, it's familiar to us because it is quoted in the New Testament. So Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse number four, this is the prohibition against muzzling an ox. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. Okay, pretty simple statement there. Uh, the Jews were forbidden, <coughs> excuse me, the Jews were forbidden from muzzling an ox while he was working and uh, uh, grinding the corn. The purpose of the muzzle was to prevent the ox from eating any grain while he was grinding the corn. The oxen would be hitched to the grindstone, marched in a circle to turn the stone while the grain is poured into the stone's path and that grinds the, the grain up and turns it into flour. Or if it's corn, then it turns it into grits. Tastes really good. Alright, but anyway, they were... With sugar. Well, yeah, sometimes. Okay, so... So you have the, the grindstone that's grinding the grain, and sometimes some of the grain would fall out of the path of the stone. And if you didn't have a muzzle on your oxen, then the oxen would eat that grain that fell out of the path and into their path, and they would eat it, and that would be a loss, a financial loss that you have because you couldn't recover that grain because your oxen were eating it. And so many cultures would muzzle their oxen and not allow them to... Uh, bend down and eat that grain that had fallen out, uh, but God said, no, you're to allow the oxen to eat any grain that falls into their path while they're working. So they were required to not put muzzles on their oxen. Okay, that's the Old Testament law. New only Testament. At that time. What's that? Only at that time. Right. Were, okay. Yeah, only only when they're, they're treading out the grain, when they're working uh, in the grain. So other times... You know, if they wanted to, they could muzzle them, but there was no need for it at other times. Um, so that's the Old Testament law. Let's go to the New Testament. Very familiar. First uh, Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 6, and continuing all the way down through verse 14. So First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. And this is Paul writing to the church of Corinth, talking to them about uh, him and Barnabas and their time when they were there with the church of Corinth. And he asked a question in verse 6, Or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? What he's talking about there, he's asking, do we not have the authority to not have a job as missionaries. We do not have to have a secular job that pays our way. He's asking the question, don't we have that authority to work just for the church and not have to go out and work and get a secular job also? 
Verse 7, who goeth to warfare any time at his own charges? So he's asking what soldier pays his own way in war. No soldier does that. The country pays for the soldier. They, they tax the people and use those taxes to pay for the soldiers uh, to be able to have their provisions and have their food and have their weapons and go to war. Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not the fruit thereof? Well, anyone that plants a vineyard is going to benefit from that. Who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the, the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen, or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. Okay, so he's taking this law about the oxen, and he's giving a application of this law for Christians, uh, for Gentiles even, because the Corinthians were Gentiles, and he's saying God doesn't really care about the oxen. God cares about us, and so he gave this law to the Jews as an example to us that the, the entity, whether it's an animal or a man, the entity that is doing the work should benefit from the work that he's doing. So you don't muzzle the ox treading out the corn because you're preventing him from benefiting from the work that he is performing. And so the same thing applies to, uh, in this case, missionaries or pastors. Uh, they should benefit from the work that they are doing for the church. And we continue in verse number 11. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? So we're... we're working for the church in spiritual areas, and they should reap from the church physical pay uh, from the church. Verse 12, If others be partaker of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that they which minister about the holy things live of the holy things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers of the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And so Paul takes this Old Testament command about not muzzling the ox. He applies it to Gentile believers, uh, telling them that the believers in the church need to pay the salary for the pastor and the full-time laborers that are in the church. And so the direct application of this law for us in the New Testament is that we need to pay our pastors and staff uh, here at our church and make sure that they are taken care of well. Uh, as we see other places in the New Testament, I think it's in Hebrews, talking about the elders that rule well, being counted worthy of double honor, and it quotes the same passage in Deuteronomy uh, about them not muzzling the ox that treadeth out the corn. All right, so that's that one about muzzling an ox. Any comments or questions about it? So I mean, I understand the pastor part, okay, um, the church, yes, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, I, and as I understand it, the school, like, take for example, this year, we have a ministry, mm -hmm. you know, and education, so, yes, uh, and as I understand it from the tuition, that's how that stands. Actually, no, the, the tuition only here in our yeah, model... Just, it only pays about half 
uh, the cost of the school and the church covers the other half. Don't pay the pianist, do pay the pianist. Mm -hmm. You know, they pay for deacons and so forth like that. I know that's gotten into some, for some churches, that's got right. to be a very critical thing. Right. And so, like, <clears throat> I know that, from just from my perspective, you know, if, if, if I'm going to do a ministry and I decide to do a ministry, um, should I expect to be? Well, that's it. And, I, and, mm-hmm. and when you hear about, you know, this is um, the way you brought this up today, and looking and looking at some of these verses over here, you know, the fact that we should read from the gospel. Right. So our service, mm-hmm. we should be reaping from the fact that we are reaching souls, as a spoke, as opposed to expecting, you know, the mm-hmm. dollar. Right. Well, if you if you look at this, um, Paul is telling the Corinthians that uh, they should be paying the pastors and the staff. The reason I say pastors and staff, you have Paul and Barnabas. Paul is the pastor when he was there and starting that church. Barnabas was his staff. He was his assistant. Barnabas wasn't the one leading the church. That was Paul. Um, so you have pastors and staff. However, Paul did say, we did not exercise this power. Um, and uh, let's see, it's verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. So he's saying we're volunteering our services, but this is the general rule that those who serve in the church should be paid by the church. Um, so you have two possibilities there that are open. You have the general application of the law is that the church should be paying those that serve in the church. However, those people that are serving can refuse that payment and they can volunteer their services instead. And so we see that a lot in our church and in other churches where some people that are paid because they have to be paid. That's the only way they can continue to do the work they're doing. And then other people that volunteer because they don't need to be paid. And so they're willing to volunteer for the same reason here lest they should hinder the gospel of Christ. They don't want the church to be burdened by paying them because that puts so much of a burden on the church that it can't fulfill its mission of spreading the gospel. And you'll see differences in some churches where they pay a pianist or um, some churches, like we would pay a, a song director in, this, in our case because he has lots of other jobs too, but we do pay our, our song director. And other churches don't. Uh, and it just depends on what is needed for that church to reach their community uh, and yet also meet the needs of the members. So it's it's a balance. And I think we see from Paul, some places he accepted payment and so other places he didn't. And I think we see from that it's a balance that's determined based on the individual needs of the church and the uh, staff that's there at that time. Does that answer the question? Not All right. quite, but you know, that's a, I, I look at it from a heart perspective. You know, right. if, I, if people want to do a ministry, mm-hmm. they're doing it to serve the Lord. Right. Now, there are, as far as the church ministry, and then, you know, what the church has to do from an administrative task, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? But then when you have these other ministries around, I have a 
I have a different perspective. If you're going to volunteer to do a ministry, mm -hmm. you shouldn't expect, that's my assessment, you shouldn't expect to be paid. Yeah. And that's, um, that, 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 you know, there's, Paul says you should, and like you said, mm -hmm. you know, he didn't accept it from very many churches. Right. You know, but uh, if you're going to work for the gospel, then you should be expected to receive the benefits of and what the purpose of the gospel mm -hmm. is, as opposed to that's right. Well, point. yeah, you're going to have to have the attitude of humility, just like Paul did. That the gospel is what is first and foremost, mm -hmm. and so even Paul, to the point of you know, this is his full-time occupation, spreading the gospel, and he's having to set that aside and be a tent maker at times uh, in order to pay the bills and uh, get his food um, <clears throat> he's willing to do that and so anyone that's in a ministry should have that same willingness for it to be a sacrifice uh, and not be something that they get paid for so you have both perspectives the church should be willing to pay them mm -hmm. and then the person serving should be willing to do it for free uh, and so then you, you have that balance to see which one and, and also the best the position too. Right, depending, yeah, depending on how much time they're going to invest. It's a full-time position right. to support the operation of the church to further the gospel. Right. That's one thing. Right. Yep. All right. Well, we better finish up. The ladies actually got out before we did this this week, so we're, we're never going to hear the end of that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Brother Ramon. Grace, Heavenly Father.